Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're at the library, a very special one. I'm visiting the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where I'm going to learn about its special collections department. Now, we're all familiar with public libraries, the community-focused libraries run by our local authorities. Institutional libraries, such as the ones run by universities, are a little different. They serve students, scholars, researchers and academics. They usually have a section devoted to special collections that often contains books, art and ephemera covering subjects that are important to the institution. These objects are often scarce and valuable, but most importantly, they are significant from a cultural or historic perspective. The University of British Columbia is commonly known as UBC in these parts. My visit began with a tour of the Chung Collection, a remarkable collection of objects donated by a former surgeon called Wallace Chung who worked at the UBC hospital. The collection spans three themes. Early history and exploration of British Columbia, immigration and settlement in the region, especially for the Chinese community, and the Canadian Pacific Railway Company. I expected to see books and paper documents, but it was much more than that. Chung's family had a special connection to a ship called the Empress of Asia, which sailed the route from Hong Kong to Vancouver and must have brought thousands of families to Canada. In the middle of the Chung collection is a replica model of that ship, which Chung rescued from a condo basement in Toronto and repaired himself. The ship was part of the Canadian Pacific Railway travel empire. A poster of the ship had hung in Mr Chung's father's tailor's shop, and that sparked his passion for collecting Canadian Pacific material as a young child. This liner had also brought his mother to Canada when she had emigrated from China. Mr. Chung worked for six years to restore the model to its former glory. Next to the ship is a China set rescued from the sea after being dumped overboard off the British Columbia coast. Apparently, when the washing piled up too high, dishwashers on cruise ships threw the dirty china into the sea. It appears Mr. Chung, who is still around, was, is, a remarkable collector of almost anything connected with his passions of history, migration and travel. There were books, maps and atlases documenting the travels of the early Spanish explorers who documented the coastline before the British arrived. Chung had also assembled photographs, scrapbooks and documents relating to ordinary Chinese families. It appears his reputation as a collector meant that when people wanted to clear out basements, he got the call. There's one glorious photograph of a Chinese soccer team from the 1920s. For me, the most wonderful aspect of the collection was the Canadian Pacific travel posters depicting scenes from Canada in order to promote the company's railways and cruise liners. They were in remarkable condition for paper objects between 80 and 100 years old. The colours were vibrant, almost new. Travel posters are one of the hottest areas of the vintage poster market at the moment and I couldn't help wondering that these posters must be worth thousands of dollars if they went onto the open market. 
When I got home, I went online and browsed through all the Chung posters on the UBC site. It really is a remarkable collection of art, travel and history. The Canadian Pacific Railway spanned Canada. Its arrival in Vancouver meant that the city could now accept people from the east by train and the west by ship. Vancouver wouldn't be the city it is today of two and a half million people without that railway. Mr. Chung's collection includes a sliver of iron sheared off the last piece of the railway track laid on arrival in Vancouver. Here's a man who understood how a city was built. I also saw a trunk filled with opium paraphernalia. A map of plots of farmland that were being sold to settlers by the railway company to encourage growth. Ledgers associated with railway expenses, tickets, pictorial maps and numerous photographs. Only 90% of the Chung artefacts are on display. In all there are 25,000 items in this one collection. I wondered about the size of Mr Chung's house. University libraries put together their special collections by donation and acquisition. The Chung collection was donated to UBC in 1999 and that's how universities prefer it for obvious reasons. Acquisition helps to fill holes in donated collections. And yes, librarians attend auctions and bid just like everyone else, although they always have a strict budget and tend to stick to it. There's one important thing to understand about special collections libraries. They're not museums. Their objects are obtained to be used. If you're a student, a scholar, a researcher, or an academic, or, or simply require some very specialist information, then you can go to a special collection library and request to see something that could be hundreds of years old or worth thousands of dollars. In library jargon, special collections departments are closed stacks, which means the librarian goes and fetches the required object for you. They are also non-circulating places, which means you cannot remove the object from the room. I saw so much more than just a Chung collection. A second folio Shakespeare, beautiful fine press books, and influential medical books. There was much to see. In order to understand more about how special collections work, I sat down with Chelsea Shriver, a rare books and special collections librarian at UBC. Sitting in the temperature-controlled reference library within the Special Collections Department, Chelsea was kind enough to answer my questions. So we all know public librarians, but how are Special Collections librarians different to public librarians? So not to dodge the question, but since our Special Collections is located within a university context, I actually sort of think of myself as an academic librarian before a Special Collections librarian. And one of the differences between public librarians and academic librarians is you're really trying to help, especially for students, build up research skills. And it's the teaching them to uh, a fish model rather than fishing for them model. So um, we're, we're trying to teach students how to use our catalog, uh, use in some cases the databases that provide um, digitized access to primary sources, for example. Um, and we also, in this context, do have to sort of provide more information that will be helpful for them to understand the materials that might not be necessary in a 
public library setting. So uh, information about the provenance of a particular book or book history and how uh, the construction of that book uh, maybe says something about uh, the time period in which it was produced or how it was used. Um, we also have here at Rare Books and Special Collections archival materials. And since a lot of students, particularly undergraduate students, will never have used uh, primary source materials, archival materials, it's really introducing them to a whole new kind of resource. So perhaps you could give us some examples of how students, researchers, the people that come in that use the library, how they use the materials that you have. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of examples. Um, so classes, um, uh, primarily history and uh, English uh, classes will come in to use the materials often as part of uh, an assignment for the course. So we get undergraduate and graduate assignments. Um, often, uh, I guess one particular assignment involves creating a book blog or some other kind of online presence that explains a single object in the collection. So uh, professors will bring in their students um, to uh, look through a selection of materials, uh, choose one, uh, research the provenance, research the um, the production of that item uh, in the case of a book, for example, um, and then to uh, provide to a public audience information about uh, that item. Um, so that's one way uh, classes doing assignments or just doing their own independent research. We also have academic researchers, obviously, who come and use the materials. Um, at the moment, we have a researcher from Hong Kong who's here, a, an author who's doing some research here. Um, we had earlier in the summer a researcher from Italy who was working on uh, a collection of papers that we have here called the Angeli Dennis Papers, which is um, pre-Raphaelite Rossetti family materials. Uh, so she's working on sh scholarship around Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Uh, we also get engineers coming here to use things like our fire insurance plans. Uh, so fire insurance plans which show not just the bird's eye street view, but what was in uh, each property, what was on the site over time. So they often do that. Uh, look at those fire insurance plans when they're doing environmental assessments. Um, and actually, yesterday, uh, a dad brought his eight-year-old old daughter and her friend in to see some materials from our children's literature collection specifically some of our Harry Potter books and it turns out that she also is just really a big fan of dragons and dragon lore <laughs> so I was able to pull out some early natural history books that depicted uh, dragons along with regular kinds of reptiles so it's a it's a broad range of people who come to use the materials so you have some significant Harry Potter first editions I believe we do yeah so um uh, because we have a children's literature collection, we sort of, a, a I guess one of the um, sub-collections within our historical children's literature collection is an Alice in Wonderland collection. Um, so we have, um, you know, the first British and the first American edition of Alice up until modern editions. And we, we really realized that if we wanted to be able to um, provide the kind of collection for Harry Potter the way that we're able to provide for, for Alice at the moment, we needed to kind of get going <laughs> on collecting those books. So a few years ago, it was actually around the time that we were celebrating the 100 50th anniversary of the first publication of Alice and had a major exhibition, we realized in 150 years we want to be able to do this for Harry Potter. So we started to try to um, collect the British and American and Canadian first edition sets. 
So really, though, those Alice in Wonderland books provide historical context for that little girl who loves Harry Potter, but 150 years ago, everyone was entranced by Alice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, not to say that Harry Potter is the next Alice, but I think that we can at this point see that the cultural impact of Harry is going to be similar uh, to Alice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned provenance a couple mm-hmm. of times. So I know what that means, but perhaps you can explain what it means from a librarian's point of view. Sure. I mean, when we talk about provenance, and I was talking with uh, a class that was in here earlier today about provenance, Um, a class was looking at some of our English language dictionaries, and a few of them noticed an ownership uh, inscription on the title page. Um, So provenance basically just meaning sort of the history of that particular copy and the ownership and sort of where that copy has been over the course of its life. So um, as an example, we have uh, in the collection association copies. So copies that were owned by an author or someone closely associated with the author and presentation copies. We have, uh, it's the first large paper edition of Picture of Dorian Gray inscribed by Oscar Wilde to his friend. Those books have interesting provenance because of the history of ownership and uh that provenance can make a book that otherwise is not very noteworthy more unique and special. So within your department, perhaps you could describe the various roles that there are. Mm. We're actually a pretty small shop in our particular unit. So uh, there is the head of the unit, um, uh, myself as the rare books librarian, and then we have uh, an archivist for rare books and special collections. And then we have an excellent support staff of library technicians and assistants. So I really am responsible for anything that is printed or published. Um, And then my colleague, Christina Laszlo, who's our archivist, is responsible for all of the archival unpublished materials. Um, So from, you know, maps to children's literature to, um, you know, modern Canadiana to basically anything that's published. Do you ever stop yourself and think, I'm handling an incredibly rare book? I I do pinch myself quite a lot during the day. This really is my dream job, and this is the reason that I came to library school. So getting to handle materials like uh, also in this exhibition is uh, a first edition of the collected poems of John Donne. We have a first edition, uh, Vesalius on the body uh, here. We we just have a really uh, amazing um, teaching collection and and research collection. Um, So I feel very, very fortunate it and um and and i and i hope that i uh preserve that sense of wonder that i that i had when i first started here and was first able to interact with these materials and it's so nice to be able to as you continue to interact with them learn more about them that you're able to share and that's really my favorite part of the job is sharing the stories that these pieces of material culture uh, can tell with new people coming into the library what would you describe as your most exciting area of the job? Is it handling the book or researching a book or considering the context of a book? I think it's really um, introducing the materials to new users who aren't familiar with these types of things. Um, undergraduate students can be hard to impress, uh, <laughs> um, but when they come in for classes and you can tell they come in and they're maybe a little bit unsure of what they're going to find here and they're not that excited and then you sit them down in front of something and 
and they, you know, their socks are just knocked off. They, you get that wow moment where they look at something and it really makes history tangible for them. Um, and we've had the most unlikely sort of, not to stereotype, but maybe jockey boys suddenly get super excited about our 13th century manuscript Bible. Um, and and when, uh, when they... Um, when I'm able to sort of provide them an entree into a world that they didn't really know existed before, that's super exciting for me. So just like a public public librarian, you're a people person, really. Uh, I am, yeah. I mean, I, I hope I am. I, I Really interacting with people and sharing our collections with people is the reason I'm, I'm here and is, is my favorite part of the job, yeah. So perhaps you could describe what a, a typical day looks like for you. Um, it's varied. I have, that's probably, you probably hear that a lot from librarians. It's quite varied. Um, but, um, let's see, I guess during the fall and the spring, uh, I'm typically going to have one or two classes that come in and I'm providing, you know, introductions to our collections. I'm taking through, uh, them through specific materials that I've pulled based on the class. So that, also involves creating book lists and coming up with activities for them to do. Um, generally, I'll be fielding reference questions in person or on the phone or in email. Um, I might also be corresponding with donors or with dealers um, about acquisitions that we might be making. Um, I'll be looking for materials possibly on dealers' websites. I'll be uh, checking in with faculty for their advice about a donation that's been offered or about materials that we are thinking about purchasing. Um, let's see, sometimes something exciting like an auction comes up and we'll be participating in an auction. Uh, meeting with the conservator, um, if there's an exhibition coming up or if there's a uh, book that needs some some work. Um, and then, you know, various meetings outside of the department. So what are the skills and perhaps also the qualifications needed to be a special collections librarian? I think it depends on the institution. So as I mentioned, we're a small shop, so we all sort of have to be generalists and learn on on the job about the uh, time periods and collections that, that we're dealing with, that we have here in the collection. Um, but in larger libraries where they actually have enough people to have subject specialists, you'll generally need to have, in addition to a library degree, you'll need to have a subject uh, degree, a master or a PhD, and it's uh, good to have uh, a few other languages, Latin, German, French are important. Um, I have, uh, as I mentioned, we have both books and archives here, and even though I'm the librarian, I do end up working with patrons a lot around archival materials, just because, you know, if something comes up, you don't want to have to go run and get the, the archivist. Um, so I actually have a dual degree in, in library and information studies and also archival studies. So training in archives, if your institution has both books and archival materials is useful. Um, some preservation training um, uh, and uh, sort of some book history uh, training is, is also helpful. Preservation training, that would be so you don't damage documents or to know how to preserve them for the future? Yeah, well both. So um, preservation training can include just 
basic handling uh, information, so how, how to hold a rare book and how to um, uh, you know, handle photographs, for example, or um, other media that's a little bit fragile. Um, and then uh, from a preservation standpoint, you know, knowing sort of what to look for in terms of pests, um, temperature and humidity that you should be keeping things at, um, the encapsulation of materials, the storage of materials. Um, and of course, we work with a conservator whose entire position is is uh, is exclusively around preservation of materials and also repair of materials. Um, but a special collections librarian and really all librarians have to have just sort of a basic knowledge of what the do's and don'ts in order to keep your collection um, uh, available for the future. A love of material culture is also very important, obviously. So um, uh, for me, I really do uh, get a thrill knowing that these materials have, have lived a, an interesting and full life and have come here and are able to help educate people about history and literature and uh, So a passion for books or a passion for culture or a passion for history or all three? I think, well, I think all three personally. So, um, you know, I, I do appreciate how um, physical items, so pieces of material culture, can speak about the past um, and how much you can learn about the past and about people and about culture from everyday objects. Um, and, you know, uh, rare books uh, can 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 hold multitudes just in terms of um, their binding and the the paper and the the type and the ink and the illustrations and the annotations all of it uh, sort of builds on each other to create this rich rich story um, and I and I love how much you can discover from a single object if you give it a little bit of your your time and, and attention. Chelsea, that's wonderful. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you so much for coming. It's been wonderful to have you here. You're welcome.